Uh, well, uh, with the death of Queen Elizabeth this week, we've heard lots of stories about her character, her behaviour, haven't we? Uh, perhaps some of you remember this one. Uh, 1992, the Queen visited Australia. Uh, and during the visit, Prime Minister Paul Keating caused a diplomatic scandal. During a function, he reached out a hand to guide Queen Elizabeth in a certain direction and he touched her. Photos of Paul Keating with his hand on the Queen's back appeared in newspapers worldwide. In England, the headlines read, Unhand Queen and The Lizard of Oz. Uh, one article uh, said, Elizabeth, uh, English press and politicians rallied around Queen Elizabeth II on Tuesday, accusing Prime Minister Paul Keating of Australia of having breached protocol by putting his arm around her. Nobody puts his hand on the Queen, said Geoffrey Dickens, I love that name, a member of the Parliament for the Conservative Party. This was a demonstration of discourtesy. I was horrified, said another Conservative member of Parliament, John Stokes. Now, that all sounds like the Queen was highly offended, but apparently she wasn't, she, uh, she wasn't concerned at all. Uh, she is a lot less worried about those types of rules than previous generations. Traditionally, there have been strict rules that limit contact with royalty, that raise barriers between the Queen or King and everyone else, uh, because uh, the sovereign is meant to be separate. Uh, and so, with the Queen, there are rules about how you approach her, about what you wear, about the correct titles to address her by, Rules about curtsying and bowing, rules about not speaking unless the Queen speaks first, and of course, rules about not touching. If Paul Keating had attempted what he did a couple of hundred years earlier, he may have ended up in chains in the Tower of London. But royal protocol has changed. Access to royalty is now more open. Now that's what Hebrews 8 to 10 is all about a change in royal protocol. Not towards British royalty, but something far more important, a change in how we approach our heavenly king, God, the father of our Lord Jesus. It used to be with Old Testament Judaism that access to God was restricted. But now because of Jesus, things are different. We have better access to God. Now that's just a summary of these three chapters. If you fall asleep now, that's all right, you've got the main point. Uh, the Old Testament, it describes how Israel was chosen by God out of all the other nations, how God gave them his law, how he came and dwelt among his people, how he camped in their midst, represented by the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. So if anyone could expect to draw close, to draw near to God, it was Israel. But the story of the Old Testament was that for all God's efforts to close that gap so that Israel could draw near, all that resulted was distance and barriers and separation. All the ceremony, the regulations of the sacrificial system, they couldn't deal with the basic problem of sin, of a guilty conscience that condemned people before God and separated people from him. The start of chapter 9 describes the problem. Verses 1 to 10. Uh, the barriers of the old way, the tabernacle. 
If you go back to Exodus 26 to 30, you can read the full description of what the tabernacle was about. Uh, The tabernacle, the outside area, was fenced off. It was called the outer court. Uh, If you were a Gentile, you couldn't go in there. But if you were an Israelite, and if you were ceremonially clean, you could go through that that, uh, fence, the curtain, the first curtain. You could offer your sacrifices there, but you could go no closer, unless you were a priest, uh, someone from the tribe and family of Aaron, in which case you could go into the next section called the holy place or the sanctuary. It's described there in verse 2 of Hebrews 9. And you could enter that through a curtain. If you're a priest, you could go in there, you could light candles, you could offer the consecrated bread, but no closer. Unless you were the high priest, the only human who could enter the most holy place or the holy of holies, described there in verse 3 of chapter 9. Now it was separated from the holy place by another curtain. The room itself was five metres square and inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant which represented God's throne, God's dwelling place. Now even though the high priest could enter that room, there were strict conditions. There was a royal protocol for how he could approach God. Look at verse 7 of chapter 9. Only the high priest... There was no general access, highly restricted. Even he could only go once a year. No other day was possible. And thirdly, verse 7, he could only go with blood. The cost of admission was incredibly high. Barrier after barrier, condition after condition, all separating you from a holy God. And that was the point. Look at verse 8. The whole point was to show how distant God was, how holy he was, and how much sin separated people from God. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Yes, you could approach God. Uh, Sin could be dealt with. Now, that was the positive, but it was also difficult and complicated and temporary and ineffective. And the whole picture reinforced how sinful and helpless people were, how distant they were in reality from God and how much they needed another solution, a real solution, one that really worked. These verses describe the problem but not the solution because the system didn't work. Uh, Look at verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. The tabernacle, the sacrifices, they gave a hint of being cleansed of sin, but it was only symbolic. It was only external. It was only ceremony. They gave a hint of God and how to be close to God, but then the whole thing shut the door or shut the curtain on actually experiencing that closeness. The system was like a mirage that gave you an image of water, but it could never satisfy your thirst. 
there needed to be a better way. Perhaps the people longed for a better way, a closer experience of God. God certainly did. God longed for a way. Chapter 8 describes how God longed for and promised a new covenant, which would work. He promised it. He provided it. A new way to approach him. A new royal protocol for relating to him. And that begins to be described in verse 11 of chapter 9. I hope you've got your Bibles open. I would love it if you're following along. Verse Chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest. And then that section goes on to describe Jesus in three ways. How Jesus is better in three ways. When, Jesus, when Christ came as high priest, he was better because he provided better access to God. Secondly, he offers a better sacrifice. And thirdly, he gives better cleansing. Better access, better sacrifice, better cleansing. So firstly, better access. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. The Jewish system, it was all about earthly barriers, earthly holy places, walls and curtains and tents. But Jesus entered the true holy place. He entered heaven itself, into God's real presence. Down in verse 24, it describes that in a little more detail. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. As special as the tabernacle was, as difficult as it was to enter, it was just a copy. It was a picture of God's true throne room. As people offered their sacrifices... They thought they were drawing closer to God. When the reality was something much less than that. It would be like queuing up all day outside Buckingham Palace thinking you were going to meet the Queen. You waited in line. You went through checkpoint after checkpoint. Security searches and metal detectors and x-ray machines. Finally you're ushered into a room and you think you're going to meet the Queen and there's a framed picture of her. All the time, you were only drawing near to a shadow. That was the Old Testament. That was the Old Covenant. That was the tabernacle. But Jesus provides better access. He provides access to God himself because he enters the true, the real throne room, heaven, for us, on our behalf. Better access. Secondly, Jesus is better because he offers a better sacrifice. Look at verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. His own blood offered once wins eternal forgiveness. The comparison is with animal sacrifices that have to be offered again and again. Jump down to verse 25, it draws that comparison. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. No, 
But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice replaces all other sacrifices. You've probably heard the saying, if you want a job done properly, do it yourself. Micromanagers everywhere love that saying. They don't trust anyone else to do the job but themselves. But that's actually true of Jesus, isn't it? You want a job done properly, do it yourself. The Old Testament sacrificial system required an animal for each sin. And God would accept that offering and forgive that sin because of the faith that brought the offering. But it only lasted for one sin. And so the following week there would need to be more sacrifices. Or on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and for the people, but it would only last for the year. And then he would have to repeat the whole process a year later. But Jesus offered a better sacrifice, his own sinless life, undeserving of death, offered in place of the sin of the world. One earth-shattering event, unique, unrepeatable, sufficient for all. Jesus' one sacrifice replaces all of the animals. It's why, as Protestants, we emphasise that the Lord's Supper, it's not a re-sacrificing of Jesus' body. That's how the Catholics understand it. Every Mass is a re-sacrifice of Jesus' real body. We understand it as a remembrance of the one sacrifice. It's that which is the basis of our confidence before God. The basis for our confidence is not the fact that we are re-sacrificing Jesus again and again. So secondly, Jesus offers us better access to God by a better sacrifice. The third way Jesus is better is that he gives a better cleansing we see that in verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Animal sacrifices are symbolic, they're ceremonial, and so they can only deal with the external. They can only deal with symbolic or ritual uncleanness. They never actually deal with sin. They can't clean a conscience. They can't deal with the heart. Only Jesus' sacrifice can do that because God's forgiveness depends on Jesus' work. Animal sacrifices... They were messy, they were dramatic, but they didn't work. It explains that contrast in a bit more detail at the start of chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For 
the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law can't do anything about what really needs cleansing. It's our conscience that needs to be washed clean. Forgiveness of your sin by your creator. The law can't do that. You see, only Jesus can fix the heart of the problem, which is the problem of our heart. It's like a car that burns oil and blows black smoke out of the exhaust and it coats the back of the car in black soot. You can clean off that black soot and your car will look clean. How long will it last? One more drive. And then you'll have to repeat the process. Because that's just a symptom, isn't it? The solution is to actually fix the problem. You have to fix the broken engine. You have to replace the head gasket or the piston rings or whatever it is, I don't know, that causes the smoke. You do that once and then you never have to wipe off the black stone again. You see, animal sacrifices are like wiping off that black smoke. They can only deal with the outside, the symbolic cleanness. Only Jesus can deal with the inside, can bring forgiveness and real cleansing and freedom from guilt. Freedom from guilt, it doesn't come from meditating or good works. It doesn't come from study or works of penance. Forgiveness doesn't come from perfect church attendance or generous donations. It comes by trusting the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. If you have done that, if you are a Christian, then you are not just ceremonially clean on the outside, but you're forgiven, clean on the inside. Your guilt is gone. If you're not, you can be. Today can be the start of a whole new, clean you, clean on the inside, where it matters. Whatever your past, whatever your sin. Forgiveness by God now means your eternity is sure. You are saved from judgment, but that's not all. There there are practical applications now. Remember Hebrews, we said, was a written sermon and the writer helpfully includes the application for those of us who preach. We just have to find the application. Well, it's down there in verse 19. What Jesus has done makes a real difference in our life today. Therefore, it's a great word, therefore, because of everything he's just said from chapters 8 to 10. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the so what, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. See, all of this theology, it actually gives us confidence before God. Right now. 
Confidence that can draw near to him. Confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered. We can draw near without barriers or distance or separation. We can know God. Look again at those words that that I just read. Do they describe your experience of God? Confidence. Draw near. Sincere heart. Full assurance. Cleansed from guilt. Holding unswervingly to hope. Drawing near in confident prayer. Confident because it's not based on our performance that particular day, but on the performance of Jesus. He's done his work. He's in the heavenly place. He's seated. It's completed. It rhymes. How about that? Seated and completed. God is near us wherever we are. He is in the holy place, which means there is no special holy place here on earth. God is near wherever we are. God is not just near now in this building. God is near on the train. God is near in the supermarket queue. God is near in the bush or in the city. God is near whether we're on our own or in the middle of a crowd. But it's not just about an individual so what, an individual application. This closeness to God, this drawing near to God, it affects our relationships with one another. Look at verse 24. And, (laughs) that's not all, there's more. Let us consider, think about, weigh up, work out how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have a rich privilege. We have a confidence and a closeness to God. We need to take hold of that confidence and encourage others to do the same. Christian life is meant to be lived in community with one another. Surely that's one of the lessons we've learnt in the last two and a half years of COVID and isolation. It's taught us to appreciate and value and and cherish and work at community, at a shared life together. Our life together, it's just not the same on Zoom or on YouTube, is it? It's just, it's not it. It's better than nothing, but it's not the same. We are to spur one another on. It's a great word, doesn't doesn't occur too many times in the Bible. Uh, It can be a negative word to spur one another on. You stimulate, provoke. (laughs) Do you have the gift of provoking people? Some of you do. (laughs) Uh, Provoke, incite one another, not to anger, incite one another to love and good deeds. How do we do that? How do we encourage love and good deeds in one another? Well, we can do it through words. We can sing and pray and have conversations. But we can actually also love and do good deeds to one another. We can show love and do good deeds to stimulate one another to show love and do good deeds. We're not to give up meeting together. You've got to say it because it's easy to get into the habit of not meeting together. 
It's easy to get into the habit of other things seeming to be more important. Catching up on sleep, uni assignments, shopping, gardening, whatever it might be. I'm sort of preaching to the converted, though, when I say that, because you're the ones who are here. (laughs) This needs to be an application for those who are not here. We need to get into the habit of meeting together. Perhaps that's an excuse uh, or or, or an argument for for why church is better in the morning rather than the evening, because it's, it's what you do first. You go to church first, and then other stuff fits in after that. If you're organised, mostly you can find time to meet together, most of the time. Other stuff, you can fit in. It doesn't have to be church on a Sunday. Church on a Sunday is great, but there's all sorts of other ways we can encourage and spur one another on. Midweek home groups, showing hospitality, meeting for coffee, meeting to pray, exercising with one another, all sorts of things we can do. Why do we do it? Because the day is approaching the day when Jesus will appear again. The end of chapter 9 describes that day. Verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We have confidence to draw near to God in prayer and repentance, because of Jesus' first appearing. And we can have confidence about Jesus' second appearing for the same reason, because of his once-for-all sacrifice. Let's encourage one another with that truth as we wait confidently, as we wait hopefully, so that all of us may make it to that day. It's a confidence that's not in ourselves, It's a confidence that's in Jesus. So let me finish with the words of chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. So, therefore, in conclusion, do not throw away your confidence. It'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Don't throw away your confidence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your your Saviour, your Son, your High Priest, seated in heaven with you right now. Uh, His body, the curtain, was opened that we can gain access with him. We rejoice that our hearts can be washed clean, that we can have sincere hearts of cleansed consciences. Thank you that we can approach you confidently in prayer and worship. Thank you that our confidence about judgment and our uh, eternal state can also be confident, uh, once again, because of Jesus and not of us. Uh, Lord, we pray that all of these truths may not just rest in us individually, but might work themselves out in our communal life together. We think of those who are not here this morning. We think of those who are drifting or have drifted away. Help us uh, to spur on those who are being tempted to not 
meet together. Bind us together, we pray, Lord. Not for the sake of the size of our church, but for the sake of your glorious gospel, your glorious Son, that he might be honoured in all that we do. Amen.